Hey everyone, it's been a really long time, so um, yeah, hopefully I'm back and I'm going to start posting again a little more consistently. Um, The reason that I stopped way back was I had this podcast recording that I did, um, but I needed to edit it because there were some parts that I didn't like. Um, And then once I got into editing, I started getting super perfectionist. Um, and I was just like, well, it doesn't even sound good anymore. Um, and I lost kind of motivation for that. Uh, so lesson learned is not to edit, uh, leave everything in. And so that's what I'm going to be doing from now on. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, I'm a little out of practice, but, um, yeah, hope you enjoy. Everyone, welcome back. Um, in this episode, I'm hanging out with my friend Hannah, um, and she's going to introduce herself and talk a little bit about how we met. Okay, great. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Dora. It's great to be here. I'm Hannah, a recent PhD graduate from Stanford, currently CEO and co-founder of a biotech startup in the Bay Area. Um, Dora and I met from Subtle Asian Sapphic squad on Facebook, which is a Facebook group for queer Asian women to meet. And I guess we like bonded over uh, liking to bike and just generally, I don't know, just good vibes, I guess. Food, That's yeah, all good yeah, vibes. Food, food. <laughs> the classic, the classic things to bond over when you're Asian. So Zareens. Zareens, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, uh, Hannah did her PhD at Stanford and now she's a CEO. Um, and I thought that the um, I guess like what she did her research in for her PhD was super interesting and really relevant to me. Um, so we're gonna talk about kind of like her journey to doing her PhD and then moving forward um, to being CEO and how that is. So we'll dive into it. Um, yeah, I guess how was, I guess like where did you go for undergrad? Were you always into science? Um, yeah. Yeah, so let me think, so we can start all the way at the beginning, I guess. So I was adopted from China in 1995 and then grew up in a small religious conservative town in central Pennsylvania. Um, I knew that I wanted to go into science. I don't know if I wanted to be a doctor, which is very novel and new for an Asian person. And so I went to college. Do you think your parents had influence on that? Um, like yes and no. I think I said I wanted to be a doctor, and then my parents were like, "Yes," and yeah. then so much positive, <laughs> positive reinforcement from that. I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to be a doctor." Yeah. Um. So then went to undergrad at University of Delaware in biochemistry, um, like pre med, and then realized about halfway through that I definitely did not want to do medicine anymore. And then I had like a period of time where I was like, "Well, I don't know what I'm doing with my life." So I had to go to grad school, um, in bioengineering because I felt like biochemistry was just like too small scale. If I had to look at another protein, I was gonna die. So I decided to go into engineering because I thought it'd be more application-based and um, wanted to go somewhere completely different um, from the West Coast or from the East Coast. So yeah, grew up in Central PA, went to Delaware. They're pretty similar to each other. And I just wanted something completely different. And when I interviewed at Stanford, everything was so different. And I was like, I don't understand how these people think. I don't understand how this like organization, like this institution works is just so different than like the hustle of the East Coast. And I was like, I don't know the type of person I would be if I went to this school. And that was really intriguing. So I really like that unknown. And so that was one of the major reasons I went to Stanford. Interesting. Um, Wait, I have so many questions. Um, 
I guess, how was growing up in central PA, like, you know, like in terms of diversity and everything like that, like how was that experience for you? It was really hard. Um, yeah, my school was like 99% white. Yeah. And of the 1%, I know I can think off the top of my head, like three other Asians, two of them were also adopted. <laughs> no one yeah. adopted people in central PA. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to put it bluntly, it was very difficult. Uh, racism's really rampant. Um, oh. Everyone is very religious. Everyone is very Republican. When I go home now, you know, I see Trump signs like every every house. So um, that being said, I had more or less like a positive experience with it. My parents are amazing. Yeah. Um, and I had a really strong community of like adopted Asians as well. And I went to Chinese school and I did Chinese dance for like 10 years. So it was this really weird dichotomy of being surrounded by a lot of white people. And then also on the weekends going and being around a lot of Asian people. And so it was like a weird spectrum of like white people and then like adopted Asians. I felt like in the middle of like not being white enough, not being Asian enough. And then yeah. like, very Asian people there too. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, it was difficult. It was very interesting and has definitely made me who I am today. So yeah, that's cool. Like, so I guess like you're, are you fluent in Chinese and everything? You know, you'd think if you take 10 years of Mandarin, <laughs> it's very embarrassing that I'm not, but I do know how to like sing songs, but oh, I nice. don't know what they mean, but they're like ingrained in my brain. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool that your parents still like, tried to immerse you in that to like you know like know your culture and everything yeah that um, was super important to them from like the very beginning yeah that's awesome so yeah I guess your college was pretty white dominated and then how was it going to Stanford um Stanford was amazing like I know Stanford's not perfect but I think it was what I always imagined what different would be like I came and there's a ton like diversity at Stanford isn't amazing but it was just way better than what I was used to which is a really yeah. low baseline um <laughs> but yeah tons of Asian people here and I think the main thing was that I didn't because I was moving across the country and I didn't know anyone here I didn't mm-hmm. have the expectation to be the same person that I was in high school I think growing up change meant that you were being inauthentic and that if you change your personality or change the things that you like what who you were or who you are is inauthentic because you're either lying about what you like to I don't know so because I didn't have that like um tie to be the same person that I was in high school I got to kind of like reimagine who I was and who I wanted to be for a long time so um that was made Stanford and California in general very, very special outside of maybe like the core academic reason that I came here. Yeah. Nice. Um, how did you get involved um, in the research that you ended up doing? Yeah, so I worked in a microbiology immunology lab. I knew I wanted to come to grad school and study the microbiome and how the immune system interact with each other. I came in super, super naive as all grad students do. And because my background is in biochemistry, I wanted to look at it through like a very mechanistic lens. And the thing with the microbiome is that it's a very early, it's very early in the field. People don't really know how to study it yet, especially at the molecular scale. So um, that being said, because the tools didn't exist, I decided to go more the computational route. Um, it's hard to be in Silicon Valley and not drink the 
you know, computational Kool-Aid, um, machine learning. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, big data. Big data. Uh, so I decided to do more of like a coding, I guess, like computational bent PhD, which worked out for me because it's much faster. It's a much faster graduate school experience. Um, so I went through intense imposter syndrome, you know, taught myself how to code. That was a, that was, it was a really difficult first year. Um, and so yeah, microbiome was like coding experience before that. I took an intro class in college and okay. then was talking to people here who have been coding since, I don't know, they could talk or walk. And I was like, damn, coding's been around that long. I, don't yeah, know. I, I, like, I didn't know that. <laughs> I was just so naive. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was intense imposter syndrome. I was like, I'm never going to catch up. I remember like, sitting in a meeting and people were just saying words I had no idea what yeah. anyone was saying and I just like walked out of that room and like googled the words that they just kept saying over and over again I was like good, <laughs> good. yeah it's gonna be fine um <laughs> but yeah so I did computational PhD because yeah like you said big data is where biotech is or just biology in general is moving and I felt like not being competent in computational methods was going to limit how valuable I am to like biotech as a whole and just like as a scientist. So um, yeah, decided to go that route and worked on how a dietary intervention um, affects the microbiome and by extension, the immune system. Um, and I got really, really lucky being able to work on that project because I knew I wanted to study how those two um, systems interact with each other, but the way that we, that the project was set up to do so was just like, I don't know. I had no idea that that's how you could study the human body, um, because, you know, in general, if you want to study causality as opposed to association, association being like, this is related to, like, X is related to Y, that's different from saying X causes Y to happen, and mm -hmm. so to get at causality, you need to perturb or change the system in some way, and a lot of times that's done with drugs, which takes, you know, 10 years to make drug all the way to get to FDA approval, um, so if you want to study the microbiome, an easier way to do that is to perturb or change the system using diet because it's so, you know, the microbiome changes so easily. Um, so looked at how the microbiome and immune system change through um, different dietary interventions. I guess like stepping back, um, what is the microbiome? Yeah. Uh, so the microbiome is a set of microbes that live either on your skin or in your gut. Um, so we have bacteria. Oh, on your skin. Yeah. Okay. Lots of bacteria on your skin as well. Yeah. Um, also some in your lungs. You have bacteria actually everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of gross when you like think about it. Yeah. So it's really gross if you like take a cotton swab and like swab your skin and then put it on some like uh, growth plates and you see everything bloom. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like real time. <laughs> yeah. Real time. Um, awesome. yeah, so we, we've had microbes growing yeah, on our body and our in our guts for billions of years through evolution. And so given that amount of time, uh, microbes have evolved to produce chemicals and proteins and stuff that, you know, turn all the knobs and dials on our immune system and physiology. And that's why microbiome is said in like all the diseases these days, it's very, it's a very hyped field right now, mm -hmm. um, but we understand it. We don't understand it very well at all. Yeah, is there a lot of like research that's like, I know you're saying like, it's kind of like in right now, like it's like a lot of research is starting, but was there a lot of research? I guess like, what was the level of research like up at the point when you started researching the microbiome? Like, is there kind of like a limited amount of papers? Like, 
does it all refer to like the same set of papers or yeah that's a really good question i think we are like the microbiome now is at an access point where it's it's starting to shift its focus away from what the initial wave was the microbiome field has been popular for a long time just no nothing has really converted it to bringing it to modern medicine or bringing it really to prime time but i think that will happen within the next 10 years so that's why mm -hmm. it's like the most exciting place to be in research i'm obviously extremely biased but i think it's the most exciting place of research right now um so i guess some history on it you know the microbiome is a set of bacteria right and so one of the questions beyond that is how do you study it? And so one of the main ways that people study it is by sequencing the DNA. So if you take a dump, if you poop into a tube and we take the, the stool sample and we um, break open all of the bacterial cell wall and get the DNA, that's how we can study what's in your gut. Okay. And so bacterial sequencing is just like, yeah, sequencing the DNA, the, the bacterial DNA in your gut. And so that um, kind of came about after the sequencing revolution in humans. Um, so I won't go too technical, but basically when they were trying to sequence all of the DNA of humans, when that project ended, which was a huge government project, they didn't know what to do with all the sequencers. So they threw bacterial DNA on it instead. And so that created this huge boom in bacterial sequencing. So that's kind of where the field was when I started my PhD and now it's kind of moving towards looking at the proteins that microbes produce, the chemicals microbes produce, as opposed to just their DNA. So for the sequencing, is it just like, once you sequence it, you just see like the names of yes. all like the, okay. Exactly, so like this is a bifidobacterium versus this is like a parvitella. You just know what it is. You mm -hmm. don't know what it's doing or anything. You can just mm -hmm. characterize um, what the ecosystem it consists of. How many? how like how how many see like how much bacteria is in a sequence or like like mm -hmm. what type of yeah so like in your gut you have trillions of bacteria Insane. you have probably if you have a healthy microbiome you probably have maybe 150 it varies a lot 150 to 300 unique species okay. of bacteria in your gut so like species are um differentiated by, you know, being just their DNA is different, I think, to, I forget, 98% difference or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, around 150 to 300 unique species in your gut. And then on your skin, it's less. But um, yeah, that's what I mean when I say ecosystem. It's like a, you know, a rainforest type. Okay. Thing. So I guess like what you did then was like, like at the point of like when you started your PhD and everything, you're like, sequencing through people's poop and like identifying what bacteria is like in there right exactly and then... so what's there mm -hmm. and then i think the next wave which is where we are right now is beyond what is there it's like what are they making what are they producing oh so you're, I, is that kind of like trying to figure out like which bacteria is like good and what bacteria yeah, is exactly. like yeah. so right now when i say association it's like oh people that are generally healthy have these bacteria in their gut. People that have chronic diseases like IBD or asthma or diabetes generally have these bacteria, but we don't know if those bacteria are actually causing disease, right? They could mm. be there because people with IBS or IBD all eat the same type of food or all have like the same type of environment. Mm. Um, and so it's just there by happenstance. Whereas if we can say that this bacteria is causing IBS, 
that's when we can make treatments and therapeutics from it. Is we're not there yet, right? Or are we're we? not there yet. No. Okay. So we're moving from those associations to causality. And one of the best ways to do that is what is causing the microbiome or a specific microbe to be inflammatory or cause asthma or cause diabetes. Oh, it's whatever they're producing, right? And so mm -hmm. if they make a protein that gets into the into your blood and then start circulating and turning on all of your immune cells and things like that. That could be why it's causing disease. That's interesting. Um, so I guess like on the topic of inflammatory diseases, um, there's IBD, which is what I have and IBS, which, or I guess is IBS inflammatory? No. I think they're different. Like IBD and yeah. IBS are different. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then asthma and diabetes, like for more examples, um, I was wondering if you knew if they were like, would someone with asthma be more prone to other inflammatory diseases or, um, yeah, like, are they related in any way or is it like different? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, well, even in IBD, you know, you can talk to some people that think IBD is a collection of like 50 different diseases that we don't understand. So we put them all under the umbrella of IBD. So inflammation mm. in the immune system is not very well understood either. But yes, inflammatory diseases do tend to co-occur with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have IBD, you have a higher chance of... Uh, I don't know, psoriasis or other inflammatory skin diseases. Ooh, I so, do have psoriasis. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. um, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if that's like, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. if that one in particular is statistically significant, but that's definitely a trend. Yeah. If you have yeah. dysregulated immune system in one area, it's not uncommon. And there's a more than, you know, random chance that you'll have dysregulation somewhere else, but we don't really understand why in a lot of cases. Yeah. I feel like just hearing that it, feels like it makes a lot of sense because it's like there's one immune system mm -hmm. I think and it's like if you know the immune system is not working in like one area of your body it's like seems like it would make sense that it like could possibly not work in a different area yeah and a lot of times so like how that this is like all my guess of how the microbiome kind of plays into it is your immune system is not responding appropriately to microbiome like it should. So even if your microbiome is the same as mine, your immune system might respond differently. So it's not always about specific microbes causing inflammation. It's also about how your immune system responds to it. So that's why it's, you know, it becomes really complicated because it's not just the microbiome causing disease. It's also your immune system responding to it differently than someone else. So it becomes this like moving variable, constantly moving variables. Yeah. How do you, I guess, like, do you know how to track, like, how the immune system, like, responds to the microbiome? Mm -hmm. Well, is that, that your thing? Is, that is, yeah, the company. Okay, <laughs> I think, okay cool, cool. So, yes, logical next question is, like, how do you study how the, how the immune system responds to the microbiome? And there are a number of different ways that people are doing that. So the way that the company and what I wanted to do during my grad school, but I ended up just taking it to the company, is growing microbes up, seeing what they produce, like the chemicals, proteins that they produce, and just literally incubating them with immune cells and seeing what inflammatory markers start to light up. Um, so if we can find microbial 
derived products that either cause inflammation or dampen inflammation, those can then be used as future therapeutics. I think that went over my head a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so basically you take microbes that are growing like on your skin or in yeah. your gut and you grow them in media so yeah. that they expand and then yeah. they produce all of their chemicals and their proteins. Yeah. And then you take those chemicals and proteins and incubate them with your immune cells that I get from like a sample of your blood. Whoa. And then I see if your immune cells become inflammatory oh when I like sprinkle those microbial chemicals on top of it so it's kind of like you have like the same set of microbes and you can like look at how your immune system responds and then like how my immune system responds yeah that's one way you could go about it and then what's the next step after you know like you see like say my immune system like is inflammatory to those microbes so then that's one way that, you know, it could be causing disease, or if we find a chemical that decreases inflammation, we can take that chemical and go through medicinal chemistry and see if it can be made into a therapeutic that would oh, okay, okay. your aberrant inflammation. Yeah. That's cool. And kind of, yeah, still understanding. <laughs> um. Okay, so I guess we'll we'll talk about like a little bit more about your company later, but we'll go back to your PhD. Um, something that like the biggest, well, I watched Hannah's PhD defense and it was like really good. And one of the main pullaways that takeaways that I got was eating fermented foods is good. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go into a little bit more details, like why fermented foods are good, and maybe yeah, like sure. what? fermented foods are? Yes. Um, so I mentioned briefly that like my PhD was about dietary interventions. So the two dietary interventions I looked at the deepest was high fiber and high fermented food diets. So high fiber foods like whole grains, beans, um, vegetables, things like that. And then fermented foods are uh, like yogurts, kombucha, kefir, um, you know, stuff like that. So fermented foods are, my friend coined this term, controlled rotting. Uh, so it's basically a collection or community of microbes that you put in a starter culture, whether that be milk, if you want to make yogurt or um, kombuchas like from tea and sugar. So basically you put these microbes in and then they grow, becomes fizzy. And when you consume the food, you also consume the microbes and everything that they're producing. Um, so in the high fermented food cohort, we definitely did not expect to see any really big changes because it's so, we, we don't really understand, fermented foods are such a broad category. Um, but what we saw is that the inflammatory signaling and what you would anticipate being higher with people with chronic disease. Like you have high inflammation if you have IBD, you have high inflammation if you have asthma, arthritis, all of these different chronic diseases that you don't wanna have. Inflammation is higher. And what we saw when people ate a diet, high in fermented foods over six servings a day, um, their inflammation became significantly lower. Um, and so what made this study so special is that it was the very first to integrate um, a lot of parameters measuring the immune system. So, you know, grant funding was essentially impossible to get for this study because they didn't think, you know, the NIH didn't think that a dietary intervention could reproducibly change the immune system. That's kind of um, annoying. <laughs> Cause I feel like that's like the first step 
no like this is I don't know it could be like related or unrelated but it's like it's crazy that you know the way that we go about things in terms of health is like what medicine can we do or like what can we do like when it already happens to help yeah. like mitigate very, this problem yeah it's very treatment focused not yeah. very preventative focused because preventative yeah. medicine doesn't make as much money bummer yeah bummer. <laughs> big bummer <laughs> um, so it's kind of funny I just think it's super weird that this study which is was a huge study and very high profile um was funded from philanthropic donations so it was just oh uh people that were very interested in the microbiome and how diet and the immune system intersect with each other and donated money to get the study going people that were part of the study did not get paid they did it all on volunteer basis they all bought their own foods like they received no compensation for it so very like citizen scientist study and yeah so that's how it was funded that's how it was run um did you kind of have to go around like trying to like look for funding and like I guess how did you go about that funding uh so I wasn't there when the study was in its nascent stages of getting funding um there were just I mean Silicon Valley has a lot of rich investors that are interested in improving their health so I think that was kind of where the genesis of it was and then Mm -hmm. now with the uh, you know this study published and stuff like that they're going out and recruiting for you know any study you can think of they probably have it in the works Um, Mm -hmm. but now they're trying to apply for grant funding again and say like here look it actually worked like can we get money yeah uh, to run more in the future so yeah hopefully in the lab that I worked in and also labs across the country there will be more uh, dietary intervention studies reproducibly showing that people can be healthier because uh, that's what it really needs yeah um how long was like the study like how long <clears throat> did it take to kind of like start to see changes in the immune system um so we saw so the study itself was over 17 weeks and then they did uh sample collection every two weeks so we took microbiome sampling through people's stool and then collected their blood for immune system changes. Uh, So we took those samples every two weeks. So the baseline was before any intervention happened. So that was four weeks. And then we did a 10 week intervention. And so we started seeing changes in the immune system, actually like the, the, I think, what was it? Four weeks in. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of it, 10 weeks, it was statistically significant. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, it was definitely very unexpected. And yeah, fermented foods are, I wouldn't have believed the data if I hadn't worked with it myself, because I feel like I'm pretty skeptical of uh, nutrition and dietary studies. But yeah, it was it was very pronounced. Yeah, no, it's cool that I can also just share, like, I know this person that has this paper that literally proves that this is true. <laughs> well, you can read the the they, they wrote a New York Times article on it. And of course, it, the, the thing that anyone does and read the comments and it was such a treat. <laughs> just <laughs> dishing on it, but it's fine. <laughs> Wait, so I can just look up your name in the New York Times and then there's an article? Uh, it was my PI who was interviewed for, or my my boss was interviewed for. Oh, it, it you, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm very interested. That's super cool. Um, so yeah, fermented foods are super good. Um, that includes like what yogurt kombucha kimchi sauerkraut yeah six servings a day is quite a bit so quite a bit yeah yeah but what we saw is that at the end of the study people could choose how much they ate and they didn't choose to eat 
six servings a day, they choose to eat like two to four. And we saw still really marked changes even into um, the time period where they were eating less. So it's more about, in my opinion, and this is what the data suggests, it's more about consistency over a long yeah. period of time as opposed to just eating six once every month or something like that. If you just eat, you know, I think two to four every day for a while, like that's where that's where the changes will come. And it's mostly about being sustainable, right? We want to make lifestyle changes and not just yeah. like a quick fix. Is like one bottle of kombucha one serving? No, I think it's two. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, honestly, that also helped like make me validate my kombucha choices. Like drinking a kombucha a day. It's like feels did you find that it it changed how you felt personally? Um I think there's always like a lot going on in I feel like I try to do a lot of like improving your life things at one time. It's like all of a sudden I'll be like, I'm gonna drink. Like, I'm always going to, like, eat yogurt or drink kombucha every day. I'm going to try to me- meditate every day. I'm going to try to, like, sleep eight hours every day. And so I don't, like, you know, and it's, I try to stay consistent with, like, whatever will stick. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I can't say, like, definitively drinking kombucha made me feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do get joy out of drinking kombucha. And- <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever brings you joy, yeah. you. I mean, reducing stress is good for the body in yeah. so many different ways so I'm, I'm about that <laughs> yeah um and then your study also included the high fiber diet right? yes everyone forgets about the high fiber um so the high fiber, fiber is diet, so important right I know we expected the fermented food result to be the fiber uh the fiber cohort which was kind of a joke that we accidentally switched the labels on the participants but fiber we didn't see that marked decrease in inflammation but what we did see is that people who had a higher number of unique species in their gut responded better to the high fiber diet so i was talking before about people generally healthy people generally have between 150 and 300 different unique species in their gut if you have lower uh, if you have lower number it's generally considered an unhealthy microbiome so if you had what we saw is people who had lower than lower levels of unique species like 80 60 80 unique things they actually became more inflamed um, as they ate more fiber, as opposed to people who had really high numbers of unique species in their gut, actually decreased inflammation. So um, it depends what's there to begin with. And it seems to be a little bit more complicated than what we saw in the fermented foods. What is, um, I guess, like someone with IBD, for example, how many do you know, like ballpark, how many microbes would be? I would say generally lower um, than what we would anticipate someone who did not have IBD. So just a really rough ballpark guess, I would say, I don't know, this isn't informed by anything, but my intuition is, I would say between like 60 and 80. Okay. I don't know. That's interesting. Cause I, I guess like, I don't know how much you know, like about IBD and stuff, but you know, like it's like you could be in remission or ever and your gut's like quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you have times where like you're flaring and then like you're guts like obviously not doing great do you think I mean to me it seems like it would make sense that like when you're flaring you have like even less yeah than say you're in like a normal state or like you know like everything's like looking fine yeah that would be that would be my guess as well yeah do you think like when it's normal it would be in a normal range because it's if it's normal yeah probably I would say it's probably normal unless you do you take a lot of antibiotics no I only take this um 
I know the name. I don't know what it is, but it is not an antibiotic. And it's not a steroid either. Mm. I mean, when you're, when you're having a flare up, your body's in stress and Mm. different microbes survive better in stress than others. And so Mm -hmm. it's more likely that one type or a handful Mm -hmm. of microbes would thrive in that stressful environment, as opposed to if your body's not under stress, then a lot of different unique microbes are able to grow and flourish. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting because I like, so I get I've had three colonoscopies so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because like now, you know, like I kind of know in terms of like to a degree, like what you look for for inflammation, like in the stool and then also just like visually inspecting your colon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I guess like where I'm at right now, like for my own gut, it's like my inflammation markers are basically like in normal range. And then like when you go do a colonoscopy, you like don't see anything like it looks like a normal colon and it just makes me like wonder it's like yeah just like oh does that mean I would have a normal amount of microbes or like a healthy amount it just makes me curious to see yeah, like, I mean, you know, that's like, a testable like, thing you could yeah you could test that I don't know I don't know the answer to that my guess would be not exactly the same as someone that doesn't have IBD yeah. because like every time you have a flare up your ecosystem needs to recover and it's yeah. not going to always recover to the extent that someone who didn't have a flare up would be yeah that makes um, sense. so that's my that would be my guess on that and then another question i had was you know like you were mentioning that there's specific microbes like you know like you, there could be up to like 150 or 300 but um in terms of like what microbes are in fermented foods, like does that always carry like the same set amount of strains or is it like different per strain? Cause like, say like, if you're always drinking kombucha, like, are you in like taking in the same Mm -hmm. bacteria? Well, fermented foods are not regulated in the United States. So basically you have no idea what you're drinking when you're you're drinking. Um, (laughs) They can put that things are in there, but they've done studies where they actually sequence you know, the bacteria in the fermented foods that you're eating and it's not what's on the label. So oh. that's a caveat. Um, is that good or bad? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's why, again, we were so surprised that we saw such profound changes in the fermented food groups. Cause you're like, what the heck? This is yeah. like an unregulated <laughs> food product. Yeah. Um, but what we saw is that the, so when people ate fermented foods, the number of unique species in their gut significantly increased. And so our first question was, oh, are those just the microbes that they're consuming directly from the food? So mm-hmm. we brought in a bunch of fermented foods from the grocery store and just like sequenced them and saw which microbes were there. Mm-hmm. And then we looked to see if those were the microbes that were increased in the participants. And we saw that it was not the case, oh. um, which is kind of crazy. So it suggests, I think it was really small. It was like 4% of the new strains in people's guts were directly from the fermented foods. Interesting. Um, so it suggests it's not what you're eating. It's just like kind of shakes up the ecosystem so that other niches and like other microbes that are there, but at too low of a level for us to detect, we're able to flourish. And so it's increasing the number of things that are able to thrive in your gut, as opposed to being dominated by a couple of species. That's very cool. Yeah, I keep thinking about like the ecosystem, like the, you know, tropical rainforest. If you have like an invasive species, you know, yeah. that would be a pathogen like C. diff or something that just yeah. overtakes your ecosystem. But what yeah. you want is like a really, uh, yeah, diverse tropical rainforest in your gut and yeah. eating fermented foods allows more, yeah, 
unique richness within that that rainforest. Nice. And I guess I had one last question in related to the gut. Um, and just wondering if you know, like <clears throat> the like I didn't realize that there was like, I guess not controversy, but like you should take with a grain of salt. It feels when a doctor prescribes like an antibiotic to you. Because like I've heard that antibiotics like really like fuck up your gut. Is that true? Like I don't know any insights on antibiotics. What are your thoughts on antibiotics? <laughs> yeah, this is a dangerous game to play. Um, yeah. so antibiotics are over prescribed. That being said, if you need to take an antibiotic, you should take an antibiotic because you could die. So um, yeah, <laughs> it depends what it's for. Um, yeah. So antibiotics do change. The gut and there has been studies showing that once you take an antibiotic your gut never come recovers back to the point that it was before so i don't what? to scare you they've shown what? that in mice, shown that in mice. Um, <laughs> so yes that does happen that being said like they haven't shown like oh but if you eat like a bunch of fermented foods you can get it back to where it was before yeah. or something like that um so it does change the gut seem seemingly irreversible irreproducibly um but if you die of an infection it doesn't matter what your microbiome looks like right so modern medicine is still good you should still take antibiotics if your doctor prescribes them and you have a serious infection but you can have a conversation with your doctor and see if there's any other options yeah yeah it's weird now i feel like where i'm at is like obviously growing up here i have the spots you know like the whole like eastern versus western medicine um mm -hmm. I feel like before I was like eastern medicine is like I don't know that's just like whatever like we have medicine and like whatever the doctor gives me I'm going to take and then I think ever since got, getting like diagnosed with IBD and then like reading more about antibiotics and just like stuff in general now I'm like well western medicine's kind of like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of making a comeback. Like these things that somehow work, but we don't know how, are kind of being, you know, brought into research labs and trying to understand, you know, what is the active component of this and can we, you know, amplify it? Awesome. Um, I guess. So you did your PhD and that was like your, like, big thing from your PhD. <laughs> yes, <laughs> You're huh? basically what you researched. Um, what was like, I don't know, like what were some lessons learned and like, like throughout that experience? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So grad school is very difficult. I think I thought I knew what I was getting myself into, but by design, you, you can't know what you're getting yourself into and it's much harder than I thought it would be. Um, that being said, it's all about the journey. I mean, you're there to learn. So I guess advice would be soak in as much as you possibly can um, because it's not about what the end product is because at the end of the day, if you get a cool paper, that's that's great. But you know, the point of it, you have four year or four or five, six years to be there and there will never be a time again really where you have this mentor that's dedicated to your success and you're around this ecosystem of other people thinking very deeply about science and about uh, their impact on the field of research and things like that. And it's just like an innovation ecosystem. So being really intentional with where you spend your time in terms of like learning as much as you can, 
talking to as many people as you can, I think will lead to the most enriching experience as opposed to like being focused on this end product of uh, academic paper, which at the end of the day, this sounds a little bit cynical, but at the end of the day, academic papers are great, but they're kind of monopoly money, right? Do they have really, you know, what's more important is like the connections that you make um, both professionally, emotionally, you know, relationships and things like that. Um, so enjoy it as much as you can or do the things that will make you enjoy it as much as you can. Um, pick a lab that you enjoy the working with the, with the PI or the boss more than you enjoy the science. You'll figure out the science. I mean, most people when they come into grad school are uh, not 100% sure what they wanna study. So just be open to whatever opportunities come your way. And I think there's this quote, it's like, creativity is hard work and dedication combined with uh, like release. So I butchered that quote, but basically it's like work really hard, but don't be afraid to make changes and make really big life decisions that are, you know, contrary to what you thought the direction you would head is in. Would you recommend doing a PhD? Like, did you enjoy your PhD experience? Seems like it's a mixed bag from like when I ask people. Uh, yeah, it's always a mixed bag. I think, oh man, take would my experience with a grain of salt. I love grad school. Holy shit, oh, it was awesome. so much fun. Um, I definitely, because it was computational, it was faster than I think it would have been yeah. if I did like a experimental PhD. Um, yeah, I mean, I got really lucky with the lab that I was in, it was really social. The, my boss let me kind of do whatever I wanted and that's what I, I wanted. I was like, I can't deal with any structure. So yeah. please don't tell me what to do. And then like, oh I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Tell me what to do. <laughs> so um, I would recommend people go to grad school, obviously for the right reason. So if you're, if, if you hate research and you don't like being in an environment where there's heavy unknown, and you just don't thrive, then that's going to be a really difficult, you know, five years. Um, but if you want to push yourself, even if you don't like the unknown or, you know, you want to, yeah, grad school will push you. And so I think everyone needs a little bit of pushing. Um, and so in general, I would say, yes, I, I recommend it, but you have to love research. That's like the main thing. You have to love science. You have to love research. If you don't like those two things, grad school will be an in, insanely painful process. Yeah. Um, so I guess like moving forward then like what you've been up to after your PhD, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came into my PhD thinking I was going to go into academia and try to be a professor at a research institution. And, um, I kind of had to lie to myself that that's what I was going to do so I could go through, <laughs> get through academia and like jump through all the hoops and deal with all the bureaucracy. Um, but I think about halfway through as what happens with most grad students, you get a little bit jaded, you know, a little bit like, what am I doing? Is this going to make an impact on the world? And what you're doing does not have to make an impact on the world. <laughs> like, like I said before, it's about the journey. So as long as you're learning how to be a better scientist and be a better human, it doesn't matter what the end product is and if it makes an impact on the world. So that's very important. Um, from that, I had a lab mate who's a really close, well, like one of my closest friends now. Um, 
we've been working, we had been working together in lab for years. And I remember one night we were both in lab really late. It was like 11 PM. I was like running samples and he was making media. And, you know, it was like that delirium where you're just like stream of conscious talking about what, what we were excited about in the microbiome and the frustrations of why it wasn't there yet. And we had both like had felt the exact same things. Like the words that were coming out of his mouth, I had been thinking and kicking around in my own mind for years and I think vice versa. And so we had really good rapport in that way. And he always knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I think it was around my second or third year of grad school, he asked if I wanted to start a company with him. And I had no, I didn't know anything about startups. And so I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm still thinking about academia, but let me read zero to one, which is like, this book by Peter Thiel, a very classic startup book. And um, so after that, we just kept talking about it and I was still kind of on the fence. And I talked to my my boss about it and I was super nervous. I thought, you know, there's a little bit of bias to go into academia if you're talking to someone who went into academia, right? So they want to keep you in the system. And so I thought he was going to try to dissuade me. Um, but he did the opposite. He kind of like kicked me out. He was like, no, you should do it. I'm like, get out of <laughs> He's here. Like, Don't come back here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, okay. You're like, is this a mental game? Should I yeah, stay? No. What do you want? <laughs> exactly. I was like, do you not want me to be here? No. <laughs> um, so I think I was on the fence. And then with his uh, pushing, he was like, no, I think like the way that you think about things and, and, the, and how fast biotech goes, like, I think you would really enjoy it. So after that, I was like, okay. I don't we still really don't know what biotech is like and what startups are like, but let's just jump head first into this because that's what I do with everything. That's not clear. <laughs> um, so jumped head first into startup life and immediately was like head underwater. Like, oh my gosh, there's like all these business students that are talking super suave, suave. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I just felt like really out of my league and they were just yeah. like saying words. And I was like, I literally don't know what you're saying. I don't think it makes any sense, but like, it sounds really good. Yeah. So I felt, again, was like, you know, when I was starting to code, I was like, I'm never going to catch up. And then when I started in the business world, I was like, I'm never going to catch up. These people have been like grooming themselves for, you know, 10 years now. But of course, when you're, when you're new, you always feel insecure about things, yeah. but um, on, on that, um, I don't know. It was just so different. I felt like there was so much room for me to expand. I was like, I'm really bad at this. And so the ceiling is so high and I need to like expand and learn and sorry, uh, expand and learn and grow as quickly as I possibly can. And, um, I think I, I work best in, in spaces where I feel like I can expand as much as possible. Um, and so I've just really, really loved being in this space of like, startups in general, I think it moves way faster than academia. And so the saying of fail fast is kind of cliche, but I think uh, it's something that I really love, like trying things as quickly as possible to get to an outcome, like a really far away vision and like iterating until you can get there um, is something that resonates really well with just the way that my mind works and the way that I like working. Um, yeah. What is a, a day to day? Like, I, I guess, well, how big is your company? It's, the company is tiny. So it's myself and my co-founder. Oh, um, we are trying to hire someone right now. So if there's anyone interested in the microbiome immunology field, please email me. <laughs> um, <laughs> my day-to-day right now is, well, 
I'm in the honeymoon phase, so I've been full time. So the company incorporated April of 2020, and we've been talking about it for many months before that. So we're about two years old. I was uh, full time in July. I like split my time my last year of grad school when I was a fourth year. And that was a horrible year. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do both startup founder and grad school. Like I need to finish grad school. Um, so I've been full-time since July. And so I'm in the honeymoon phase, but this is the most fun that I've ever had doing anything before. Like, I don't know, I don't want to jinx it, but this is like my dream job of you know, awesome. working really hard on a vision and dream that I've been thinking about for a very long time and have been working really, really hard to to try to make a reality. Um, mm. So my day-to-day -day varies, um, as you would imagine. Uh, Will is my co-founder, him and I wear many hats uh, throughout the day. Uh, I think in the morning I'll do like admin duties. Since I'm CEO, I do a lot of like public facing stuff. So I'll do emails, uh, chats with investors, talk to our um, accounting people, making sure that our budget is in order. Um, so that- How is uh, chatting with investors? How does that go? Varies. Um, <laughs> I'm cynical. Don't want to go with this. Um, it's really when I started, I was so bad at talking to investors. I think I had like I was just a scientist, and they could feel that from yeah. both Will and I. I mean, we it was it was very funny. We had one investor in particular who thought we were trying to rip him off, and he was like, "No, we just need to meet in person because I feel like you know you're doing like shady business <laughs> yeah. with him in person." He was like, "You know, after meeting with you, I don't think you're capable." <laughs> So yeah, we just didn't know what we were doing at the beginning. And so that's, again, what I mean, like iterating and failing fast is we talked to like 80 different investors about our idea mm -hmm. and we got so many no's. And so it's really hard to like talk to these people over this dream that you've had for like five years and have someone tell you, I don't think your idea is good, especially hard when it's people who have not taken a biology class since high school. And they're like, you know what? I just don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> well, Thank you. Thank you for that feedback. It's such a good um, So it was a lot of that at the beginning. And so because we were getting so much feedback, we grew in, in um, you know, we're able to improve really, really quickly. So it's gotten a lot better. Um, it's definitely a language. So, you know, when they ask you a question, they're not asking that question, they're asking you something else. And so you really just have to be in this space and have, you know, figure out what your voice is and um, how to communicate with these, you know, with these people that have a lot of power and a lot of money and may not, you know, it's not, a lot of it I was thinking about it the wrong way. I was like, if you don't get my vision, then that's your problem. And so that was like my insecurity coming out, but it's like, you know, I need to, it just means that I'm not communicating correctly. Like I'm yeah. not appealing to you. And so the most fun thing that I love about talking to investors and really being an entrepreneur in general is being able to connect to as many people as possible. And so different things resonate with everyone. And I love talking to people and seeing what makes them excited, like what ignites a spark in their eye and then trying to appeal to that area of their passion. Um, so sometimes that's, you know, more tech focused, like how are we going to leverage uh, biology for furthering machine learning and AI. Sometimes it's how can we make a really good therapeutic? Sometimes it's how can we bring the microbiome into prime time? So it's always, you know, asking the right questions to see what people believe in and trying to lean into that as much as possible. Where do you like find these investors? Um, so once you kind of get your foot in the door, it's kind of like a whirlpool. So then you get sucked into the to the world. So we had a pre-seed investor, which is someone who gives money in a very, very early stage. Um, so pre-seed is basically 
a person, like a co-founder or two in a prayer, which was what Will and I were for like a year. Um, so if you've heard of Y Combinator, those are like very early stage investors. They usually give on the order of magnitude between $100,000 and $200,000 to try to get you off the ground. Um, so our pre-seed investor was uh, Pair VC, which is an investor in the Bay Area. And then once we kind of got our foot in the door with them, their network just like, you know, expanded ours. So um, you just need to get enter it and then things kind of expand organically from there. Yeah, like I guess like today they're like, oh, I know this person or yeah. like you just like contacted by another person. Yeah, exactly. So I know this person and then you connect with them on LinkedIn and then someone else will say like, oh, we have a mutual connection with this person. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works. That's cool. And yeah, sounds tough. Yeah, it's definitely the hardest. Starting a company is by far academically, professionally, the hardest thing I've ever done. Like yeah. compared to grad school, yeah, I think I thought I would be less busy when I finished grad school. And I think the pressure of starting your own company is, you know, four, five, six, ten times harder than grad yeah. school. Because I feel like in grad school, I saw people that look like me. I mean, being a queer Asian woman isn't super common, uh, but there are people like, you know, queer people of color exist in, in academia and in grad school. Um, queer people of color in biotech, especially in a CEO co-founder role are essentially zero, um, not zero, but it's super, super uncommon. Like I think there's a statistic that 4% of companies that have VC funding or venture capital money um, are female founders. So that's kind of the level we're at. So 4% of companies are female led. That's not even including people of color. Um, so that has been a huge pressure, I think. Like in grad school, I felt like if I don't, you know, if I'm not excellent in every way, it's, it'll be okay. But in being a CEO, I feel so much more pressure to represent, you know, women, Asian, like Asian folks, queer folks, adoptees, like the intersectional identities make it, yeah, more pressure to be excellent because we don't have the luxury of being mediocre. Yeah. Well, I think you are very excellent. Thank you. So inspiring. So <laughs> inspiring. Um, yeah, I feel like I I will just like Hannah has a website. I like stalked her website and inspired me to work on my website. <laughs> Everyone should make a website. It's so fun. Like you can just be as indulgent as possible. You can just like do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I now see the value. I think also because like, you know, I know you. And like being able to just like read about stuff about you or like like she Hannah has some blog posts and it was I don't know it's just like it's very cool um and yeah I'd recommend anyone to do a website as well yeah I feel like it's just like another way to, yeah um, representation is so important because I feel like when I see people that I admire crushing it it's the that means more than sometimes even like direct mentorship. If I can just see that someone that I want to aspire to has like gotten there and done it, I'm like, okay, someone else has done it. I have no excuse. Like it can be done. Um, and then I also always want to know more information about them. So yeah, put yourself out there, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much um, for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, this was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Big honor to be on your podcast.